So first of all, I want us to think for a few moments about hope. And a question to, to get us thinking, first of all, is, is this. What or who do you put your hope in? What or who do you have your hope invested in? Uh, whoever it is, whatever it is, can it deliver on that hope? How certain are you that, that what you're putting all your hope in is going to deliver what you're hoping for? Because as I've been thinking about it this, this week, um, it's been pretty clear to me that actually the, the certainty of what we're hoping for <coughs> happening and the certainty of whether it's going to happen or not actually does affect our behaviour and our emotional well-being. And to illustrate that, I want to, to talk about football for a minute. So you have to bear with me on this. I want you to imagine that Oxford United has made it to the semi-finals of the FA Cup. And I want you to also imagine that you are all massive Oxford United fans. Now, so Oxford United, there they are, semi-final of the FA Cup. And you've got half of your mind on the FA Cup final. And you know that if you buy the FA Cup final tickets now, it would be much cheaper than after the semi-final. So you've got to think, well, I only want to watch the final if Oxford are going to be there. So, how strong is your hope that Oxford are going to make it through to the final? If you're convinced that they're going to do it, you're going to go ahead and buy the tickets. If actually you're thinking, perhaps they might not make it, then you're not going to want to splash out and, and buy um, tickets for that FA Cup final. Now imagine now that um, you're an Oxford United player yourself. And, uh, yeah... Oxford United versus Manchester United in that semi-final. I wonder how, how that changes things in, as you, your hope of getting to the FA Cup final. Wow, you're playing Manchester United. What, well, I guess Oxford United, I hope there's no massive big Oxford United fans, but realistically speaking, the chances of Oxford being able to beat Man United and get to the FA Cup final are pretty slim. So as an Oxford United player, as you look forward to this match, you're thinking, we've got no hope really. It's not going to be a question of um, whether we win or not, it's, it's going to be damage limitation. We're going to set out our stall, we're going to just try and not make it too embarrassing for us. So as an Oxford United player, in that situation, with no hope of winning, that totally changes the way you approach the game and your confidence and all of that side of things. But now, on the other side, if you're Cristiano Ronaldo and you're playing Oxford United in, in the semi-final of the FA Cup, it's a totally different ball game, to mix my metaphors a bit. It's not going to be a question of if you score, it's how many you score. You're going to go into that game full of confidence, full of hope that actually you're going to trounce Oxford United and send them back with their tails between their legs. So actually, the, the, the certainty of what we're hoping in um, 
coming true or not does make a difference to our behaviour and our emotional well-being. I just want to show a, a movie clip um, in, in a moment from the Shawshank Redemption. And this is one of my all-time favourite films. I remember watching it with a friend of mine and at one point during the movie this guy just leapt out of his seat, punched the air, shouting, come on! I've never seen anyone have that kind of... Yeah, thing watching a, a film like that. But it's, it's a great film. Andy Dufresne, and played by Tim Robbins, is wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and her lover and ends up um, doing some hard time in prison where he comes across a guy called Red who's paid, um, played by um, Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman kind of, kind of takes him under his wing and looks out for him in prison. Um, and that's where we'll pick up the story here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's, a, there's something inside that they can't get to, that they, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got my roots on the inside. Better get used to that idea. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy.
So it's amazing the transformation that happens in red throughout the film. As we saw at the start there, he says, there's no place for hope in, in this prison. Hope is a dangerous thing. To, at the end of the film, being as excited as a schoolboy about the hope of being reunited with his, with his friend. And so I love that line. Hope um, is the best of things, Andy Dufresne says. But just hope in itself is just a, a bit wishy-washy. The, the, the object of our faith, is what, of, of our hope, is what's all important. But I wonder if, um, uh, coming back to, to Zechariah, coming back to, to God's people at this time that um, Zechariah's writing, I wonder whether um, God's people at that time, which one of those reds they would identify with. The red in prison, where there's no place for hope, hope is a dangerous thing. Or the red at the end of the film. Well, Israel's history is, is, is a real kind of up and down of highs and lows. And how are these guys feeling at this point in, in their history? Well, I reckon they're probably a pretty mixed bag. The, the remnant, there's a remnant of God's people back from um, Babylon, back in the land again. There's just the remnant. They would have been feeling a bit fragile, I guess, a bit kind of broken. And as you kind of look back through the pages of the Old Testament at, at the history of God's people, there's a, there's a kind of continuous cycle of, of God rescuing his people, of them forgetting him, of them losing sight of his promises, of them losing hope that he can be trusted and going to deliver, of them doubting God's promises, of that leading to a kind of moral decline, of them living as if God doesn't exist, and of outward rebellion against God, and of God punishing them and bringing his wrath, his, his holy anger at their rebellion against them, and of them crying out to him, and of God rescuing them again. That, that kind of cycle co- comes again and again through the pages of the Old Testament. You just have to read through the book of Judges to see again and again God rescues his people, but they forget him. They turn their backs. They're, they've got stiff necks and they forget him. So I imagine that these people where, that um, Zechariah is talking to, the, the remnant back in the land, would be kind of a bit of a, a mixed bag, feeling a bit broken, a bit fragile. And Jerusalem, that once golden city, there it is, in, in ruin now, far cry from the splendour of the glory days of, of Solomon. The temple has been destroyed, God's dwelling <coughs> destroyed. And these people are living amidst massive, massive, huge economic and political and social upheaval. Nations and empires are rising and falling uh, round about them. And these people, here they are, just a a handful of people really, just the the, the remnant of of God's people, just feeling pretty powerless to change the kind of big political stuff going on around them 
and powerless too to change their own hearts deeply aware of that cycle that's been going on throughout their history so I think when Zechariah comes to these people he finds them lost and in need of hope and I guess as we look around our world today it's in just as much kind of economic, political, social upheaval we've prayed already for, for Georgia and Russia and uh, we don't have to think too hard of, of instances of, of the brokenness of this world and it's easy for us to feel lost it's easy for us to feel what's happening uh, wondering is it all spiralling out of control and I guess just individually in our own lives day to day we can feel just as, as fragile and broken as these people would have done maybe we're in the midst of some pretty major upheaval socially, economically ourselves maybe our job isn't as secure as it once was maybe we're just all too aware of I guess our past failures in trying to, to, to live to please God maybe we're just as stiff necked as God's people and we want to change but we feel we just can't so we too are in need of some hope and we too need to know that, that God is in control and that his purposes are good throughout the whole of, of history the, the devil has been working to try and, and get us to believe lies about God to believe that he's not in control to believe that he's not good that he doesn't have our best interests at heart well this morning we're going to see that, that God is in control and his purposes are good so if you have your Bible, do um, turn with me to chapter 6. Now this is the, the eighth vision, um, verses um, um, 1 to 8. So I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north, the one with the white towards the west, and the one with the dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. So the first thing he sees in this um, vision, in this eighth vision, is these two enormous mountains of bronze. There's um, a bit of debate as to exactly what that's all about, what, it, what it's meaning. Um, I guess it's um, a reasonable assumption that we could say it's, it's probably symbolic of, of the temple and people have drawn allusions to um, great big pillars at the entrance of the temple 
let's say. So that's what's going on here. They say that there's these two enormous pillars of bronze. Um, uh, yeah, from from out through which um, these these chariots come out writhing. But I guess um, whether it's the temple or not, one thing we can't miss is that they are just big and they're bronze and they're just massive, immovable, um, impenetrable, unshakable. That's the kind of um, imagery that, that's coming across from God's dwelling. Um, it's, it's kind of power, unshakable, impenetrable and, and big. So from between these, these two mountains come these, these chariots and their horses. And we've seen some horsemen already in, in Zechariah in chapter 1. But in chapter 1 it's just the horses, no chariots. And uh, um, here in chapter 6 um, these chariots go throughout the whole earth again and again says that you know, they're straining to go throughout the earth and he says go throughout the earth and they go throughout the whole earth just kind of emphasising that point that these chariots are going everywhere and chariots are kind of synonymous with military power and strength and, and conquest again there's been all sorts of debate about what the different colours of the horses means and all that kind of thing and people look, jump forward to Revelation and think about horses there and all that kind of stuff um, but yeah I'm not too sure about that but uh, yeah the, the, the big kind of thing that, that's coming out here is that these horses are coming from God's presence going everywhere everywhere that actually the, the whole earth is, is being conquered by God's kingdom that his kingdom reigns supreme and whereas in chapter 1 the horsemen went out on a kind of scouting mission and they reported that the, the earth was at rest. In chapter 6 um, it's not the earth that's at rest it's God's spirit that finally comes to rest. In chapter 1 that rest is, is, is the world resting in kind of Arrogant rebellion against God. Uh, as if he's not important, we'll just ignore him. That's the kind of rest that the horsemen find when they go out. Whereas here, the, the, the rest is, is God's spirit resting. Just like um, at the beginning of uh, creation, when God rested. Not because he's tired, but because everything's done. There's nothing further to do. God's rule is complete and utter. So the big thing from this last, um, this eighth vision is that God is in control and his kingdom reigns supreme. So I guess we need to ask, well, what, what, what does that mean for us today, here? And... Uh, I've got just one very simple thing up there. Um, if God's in control, we need to let God be God. And that has kind of implications on, on the global scale, but also on a personal scale for us. You just have to, to read through the Psalms to see that actually the nations are a drop in the bucket for God.
God, that, that he raises princes to naught, that, that God is seated on the throne. He's the one that's completely sovereign and in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing is outside of his rule. And it's not as if there's a kind of cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, and, you know, who's going to win at the end? That's not the case at all. God is completely sovereign. He's in complete control. The devil is beaten. And one day, his kingdom will reign over all. And everyone will know it. So that truth changes things here and now for us. Just like uh, Man United playing Oxford. It changes the way we play the game. Because as Christians we can be, be confident of that timeless truth that, that God is in control, his kingdom reigns supreme and we can just trust him. Now that's something that's, that's very easy to just say and it just kind of trips off the tongue very easily. But it's another thing to, to actually live out. I guess there's a difference between what some would talk about as, as a confessional faith and a kind of living, practical faith. Now I want you to, to imagine you're on the high street in Oxford and I want you to imagine there's a kind of um, metal wire, steel wire going across the street and I want you to imagine there's a kind of unicyclist on top of the rooftops there and you're part of the crowd, we're all there, we're all kind of crammed in to see this amazing tightrope walking unicyclist. Um, yeah. And so, there we are, we're, we're crammed in to, to see him, and he shouts down to us, um, what should we call him, Nigel the Magnificent, like that. And he shouts down, do you believe I can unicycle across this wire across the street and we're yeah we believe you Nigel yeah you're magnificent yeah you can do it and so sure enough he hops on his unicycle goes across and everyone cheers gets to the other side and he says do you believe I could do it blindfolded and we're like yeah you're magnificent Nigel we believe you you can do it so puts the blindfold on goes across everyone cheers this time he goes down to the crowd, he shouts down to, to us again, do you believe I could go across with someone on my back? Yeah, yeah, we believe you can do it, you're amazing, you can do anything. And then he asks, so who wants to come up and, and do it? And <laughs> it's, it's one thing saying we believe and having this kind of confessional faith but the living, practical side of things is, is another thing sometimes. And actually saying, yeah, God's in control, that's easy when life is going well for us. But what happens when bad stuff happens? What do we do then? There's a lot of just rubbish theology around that, that says... Um, if you're a Christian, then God will bless you, you'll have health and wealth, and you'll never have any problems, and everything will be fine and great. Well, that's just not true, is it? That's, 
that's a kind of pagan view of Christianity. It's, it's, it's us being God, it's us um, twisting God's arm in order to make him do what we want him to do for us. It's as if, as if we're God. We've written the script of how we want our life to pan out and we just kind of hand God the script and say, read your lives. But what happens when that doesn't work? Well, we get frustrated, we get, we get angry, we, we despair, we lose hope. But the truth is, Christianity is not something that's just been de- designed to, to get us around suffering and trials and, and difficulties. Christianity is, is a relationship to get us through those difficult times and the suffering um, when it comes. And I guess the ultimate example for me, as I've been um, thinking in, in recent weeks, is, is in Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, at that moment in his life, is, is feeling intense, emotional, and, uh, well, je- yeah, the, he's, he's sweating blood at the prospect of having to go through with the cross and the suffering and, and being separated from his father and so three times he prays take this cup from me but, but, so he's, he's real, he's, he's raw with his father he's, he's honest about how he's feeling and what's going on and he, 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 he says what he would like to happen but then he says yeah, but not your will, uh, not my will, but, but your will be done. So that's a, a, a great model for us there. And actually, that's what we need to do as well. That's what it, it means to, to have that kind of practical living faith that, that God is in control, to let God be God. It's to say, when the doctor says to us it's, it's cancer when our boss takes us into his office and says I'm sorry we've got to downsize and that kind of thing or when we're just lonely and want to be married and all of that kind of stuff in the midst of wh- whatever it is that we're, we're going through the mark is whether we, when we pray we say your will be done and whether we believe those words in, in Romans 8 that actually God is working for the good of those who love him in order to make us more like Jesus so God is in control his kingdom reigns supreme and we need to let God be God and that's not easy but secondly we need to, we need to move on um, so let's look at that last chunk of chapter 6 and we're going to think about the king of the kingdom so I wonder if you noticed anything strange in this um, thing when it, when it was read out so here we are there's a bunch of exiles uh, recently arrived from, from Babylon and they told to, to get a, make a crown and put it not on the king but put it on the high priest 
That's a bit strange. Um, what about Zerubbabel? I mean, chapter 4 already, we've seen that Zerubbabel, he's going to be the, the king that is going to build the temple. But he's not mentioned at all in this passage. And in chapter 3, when Joshua is, is, is dressed from those filthy rags into the, the, the clothes, um, he's, he's given a turban on his head, not a, not a crown. So what's going on here? And if you look at verse 14, see the crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. So he doesn't keep the crown on his head for too long. Either. It's put on his head and then taken to the temple. So what, what's going on? Well I guess looking at all of those things together, I think it leads us to, to see that there's something symbolic happening here. And verse 12 um, tells us a bit more about that. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. So in chapter 3 Joshua and the others are told that they are symbolic of the branch as well. Let's just flip over to chapter 3. That's it. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Listen, O High Priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. So who's this branch that's being talked about here in chapter three and, and chapter six? In chapter three, the branch is the one is, is the kind of priest who takes away sin. And in chapter 6, the branch is the king who's going to build the temple. So all this stuff, is, it's pointing to, to someone, something greater. And it's picking up on language used already by Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 11. Let me just flick there. Isaiah 11 and verse 1 A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse So that's from, from David's royal line um, King David A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse From his roots a branch will bear fruit The spirit of the Lord will rest on him The spirit of wisdom and of understanding The spirit of counsel and of power The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left over of his people from Assyria. So here we are. In, in chapter 6 and in chapter 3 this mysterious branch person it's picked up on, picking up on what Isaiah's been talking about. 
and uh, the rest of Zechariah makes it plain that this branch is, is Jesus just look with me at uh, chapter 9 verses 9 and 10 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's making us, it, it clear to us that, that this branch, this one who will um, save the people from sin, this one who's going to build the temple, is Jesus. And I guess um, as you look forward to, to, the, to the New Testament, um, do you think, well, what does this mean for us today, again? Um, the, the, yeah, let's turn to Ephesians. Let me just read to you some, uh, a couple of verses from Ephesians 2. The kind of temple imagery is um, picked up on in, um, in the New Testament like this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit so what what does this mean for us what can we learn from that well, we can take great encouragement from, from that fact that, that Jesus is the one who's going to build his church. And that's a great relief um, to me, personally. Um, but yeah, it's much more than just a kind of physical building in Jerusalem. God's temple now is his people together with Jesus himself as the, the, the chief cornerstone. So the second thing, we, that's what we need to say, yeah, Jesus is central. He's the king of God's kingdom and he needs to, to, to stay absolutely central. So I guess as we're thinking about this this morning, that we need to be asking, um, what is he, the capstone of our church? Is he our primary focus? Uh, a few weeks ago we were looking at Revelation in the evening gatherings and um, Daniel Blanche was uh, looking at the last few words of, of the Bible one question that, that, that he put to us um, has, has really stuck with me and is challenging and is helpful for us here as we think about this he was saying when, when we think about heaven what is it that we long for most what is it that we're looking forward to most about heaven is it being with Jesus for eternity or is it something else 
because actually if, it, if it's something else it shows us that something's wrong and our focus is not on our cornerstone and the capstone it's like a, a wedding without a, a groom there just a waste of time so what is it we're looking forward to most about heaven? spending eternity with Jesus or something else? So here we are, Jesus is a priest and the king. He's, he's a rescuer and he's our Lord as well. It's easy to, to have Jesus just to kind of forgive us and be our rescuer and all that kind of thing. But I guess it, it's another thing for him to be Lord in every aspect of our life. Um, we don't want to just simply reduce him to an insurance policy or you know, tap the glass in emergencies and that's it. Jesus is our priest. He's the one that, that can deal with our sin and cleanse us. But he's the one that fills the temple. He's the, the king. He's the cornerstone and, and must be central. So just to, to finish up, One quick question. What is it that God's looking for from his people? Well, at the start of this series of visions and the last few words of um, chapter 6 as well gives us a big insight. We read Zechariah 1. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, <coughs> and I will return to you. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, and I will return to you. And at the end of chapter 6. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So what's God looking for from, from his people? He's looking for, for genuine repentance. And repentance is something that's, that's quite often misunderstood. But it's, it's just simply turning around, doing, doing a 180. I've been listening to some stuff by um, Tim Keller um, recently, who's um, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in um, New York. And he talks about some marks of, of faith repentance. And um, there's just a couple of them here that, that he talks about. He talks about the marks of, of, of faith repentance as being just mere confession, where we feel bad, but we don't actually change. We feel bad for a time. Maybe the Spirit is actually highlighting stuff that we need to, to change and we feel bad for a time, but it's not a lasting, genuine change and turnaround in our heart. But it talks about also religious repentance, where we, we, we feel bad because we fear the consequences. So we think, okay, if, if I want God to bless me, um, then I need to repent in order to get these good things from God. Um, 
so that will make God like me and give me these good things. Or we repent because, not because we're worried that we've hurt and damaged our relationship with God, but more because we're worried what other people will think of us if they really knew what we were like. So he talks about mere confession, just feeling bad and not, but, but not really changing, not having a real heartfelt turnaround. And a kind of religious repentance where we just feel bad because we fear the consequences more than anything else. So I wonder which one of those do you fall into most? Maybe that's something you need to ask your wife or your husband if they'd be able to give you an honest answer on that. But the truth is um, the, the glorious news of the gospel is that actually our, our forgiveness doesn't depend on the purity of, of our repentance. It doesn't depend on, on our performance, but it's all on Jesus' performance. It's all on what Jesus has done on, on our behalf. Maybe there's, there's sins that we just keep tripping up on again and again and again. The, the same thing and maybe we, we wonder is God still going to forgive me this time even though I keep doing this stuff but the truth of the gospel is yes he will forgive you but that's not the right question to be asking will, will God still forgive me if we're, if we're continually tripping over the same kind of things perhaps the question we need to be asking is, is what's going on with my repentance Is it just a kind of mere confession? Is it just a kind of religious repentance? Now I wonder if you, if you think about um, white lies, for example, this is perhaps one of the things I trip up on again and again and again. Sometimes it's very easy to just kind of fudge the truth a bit and tell people what they'd like to hear. And I can you know, keep on asking for forgiveness and turn to God and, and that kind of thing for, for those different things but the truth is there's something much bigger going on behind the scenes the truth is that I fudge the truth I say these white lies and things because there's a bigger idol in my heart the idol is, is, is what other people think of me so if I really want to, to deal with, with that kind of stuff then I've got to address the big stuff, the, the, the idol in my heart, first of all. But, uh, yeah. So that way I'll finish up. But, um, so here we are. We've, we've seen that, that God is good, that he's in control, and that his kingdom will reign supreme. And we've seen that Jesus is the king of, of the kingdom, and he is central. So just...